Oh, Mike, thanks for coming early. I could use a little I, I could use a little chill time with with a couple board games and, and the like. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I I get that for sure. You know, this month does does strange things to me. Oh, hey, hey, what's that you got there? Oh, I uh, just stopped by the uh, library and uh, picked up a a book here. What's that called? Oh, it's uh, it's called the book of Azatoth. Nope, nope. Oh, don't don't worry, James. It's it's just the uh, Polish translation for Fox and Socks. Oh. oh, okay. Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time of day it is. Welcome once again to Gaming Studio Regulars. I'm your host, James Iris, joined by the other host, Chrissy Harding. Hi, everyone. And today we have a guest in the digital studio. Please welcome back, Mike QC. How's it going? It's been a little bit since we've had you on last. A little bit. A little bit. I mean, although I, I will say it, it definitely seems like it was just a, a couple weeks ago. I know it wasn't, but time's still moving a little weird uh, these days. So it really doesn't feel like it was that long ago at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's also the month, too. I mean, this is when the veil's a little thinner. That's fair. Don't remind me. It's okay. It'll be over soon. We're not going to put anything too scary up today. Maybe. That's what you think. Well, not too scary, huh? Well, maybe. <laughs> he, he, yeah. Listen, he survived Silent Hill. I have to give him credit. Wow. The movie or the game? The game. Nice. But today we are instead all the way up in the northeastern United States yet again to discuss the influence of H.P. Lovecraft on gaming in general, because it is everywhere. Yeah, H.P. Lovecraft, as a writer himself and as a person, is a problematic, but no one can deny his influence currently, especially on the horror genre, to the point that I swear every horror game that comes out somehow plays the inspired by... Lovecraft or is Lovecraftian and a lot of games are can say that but majority of them are, are more poish so I think today we were going to try to talk about games that we consider wonderful homages to Lovecraft and Lovecraft's vision and before we dive into that we are going to give a quick honorable mention to a humorous little expansion for one of my favorite card games smash up which is nothing if not very self-aware. They called one of their sets the Obligatory Cthulhu Expansion, (laughs) which is a very apt observation as to just how prolific this giant green 
cephalopod-like thing has become in geek culture, if not necessarily pop culture as a whole, but it's getting there. Yeah. And a great deal, you know, and, and that's kind of funny because when they came out with theirs, they were actually making fun of Munchkin. Because if anyone's played the Munchkin game, there is a Cthulhu pack, and I think they just put out an Aser, um, Azatoth pack. So I'm like, they're doubling down on like their Cthulhu influence in that game, too. When we come back from the break, we're going to break down what makes HP Lovecraft's work tick. And we're going to start talking about some of the earliest instances of his properties and ideas showing up in gaming. So we'll be back in a hummingbird's heartbeat. Give or take another 5,000 so. Lovecraftian horror, or to put another phrase on it, cosmic horror. Basically, any horror thrives on suspense and the unknown. And the core conceit of a lot of Lovecraft's ideas are that some of these things can never truly be known in any capacity. Cthulhu, the King in Yellow, and so on are beings with power on a scale that makes the human-to-ant comparison seem quaint. And the thing with, with Lovecraft is, is is he does put in, and it's really kind of true, is the first known experience human ha- of human horror, or the feeling of horror, is the fear of the unknown. And while he himself is an extremely problematic writer with some of his views, um, that we won't go into in this, he did contribute a great deal to it. And I do can run into sometimes the feeling of, cause I do like his stories. I do like the mythos he created, both the Cthulhu mythos and the dreamland mythos, which are sep- which are connected, but kind of separate. I do want to state that anyone who starts to have those little squeamish feelings don't feel bad about buying some stuff that he's written because it's public domain and it doesn't go into anyone's pocket. <laughs> so he's no one's making money off of off of his writings right now, as we know, other than the publishers. And mercifully, there has been some work done to uh, address some of the more problematic aspects of his writing legacy. Definitely, if this is your sort of thing, definitely look into the HBO series Lovecraft Country. Oh, read Which, the book. Just read the book. The writer of that book, he's he's amazing. The, the series, too. yeah, the series is good too. But if you support the writer, guys, because like he really addresses it, and he truly, to me, understands what makes Lovecraft Lovecraft. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't read the book, but I did I did see the series, James and Chrissy, and I. Mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend this series at the very least although you know definitely you know always recommend the book but the series was excellent and kind of a, a you know 
HBO was kind of had a big year on tackling racism in general, and it, it was nice to kind of see them address some of that with with Lovecraft Country. Yeah. And mercifully, a lot of those elements do not appear in these games. Thank God. Yeah. So <laughs> we can sure. actually feel safe talking about these. So where do you guys want to begin? Do we want to begin with the very first game, whether it's board game or video game, that featured Lovecraft? Do you guys want to start there or just start with the ones that we like? Well, we should probably start with, I don't know if it's the first, but it might be the foremost, The Call of Cthulhu RPG. Actually, and the Cthulhu Cthulhu RGG did come out in 1980, so it is one of the very first actual Lovecraft games. Dungeons and Dragons actually did have a lot with uh, inspiring that that board game, because Dungeons and Dragons actually is the first one to show some of the Lovecraftian monsters, especially in the advanced Dungeons and Dragon deity and demigod printings where it included a lot of Lovecraft's monsters with stats and then from there came Call of Cthulhu which still to this day is um, a very popular game it's on its 7th um, edition right now it is <laughs> it makes D&D look slow with putting out new editions I've done a few campaigns in Call of Cthulhu Mike you said you've done a couple as well no Call of Cthulhu I, I'm familiar with it, but that's one of the few Cthulhu-themed, you know, kind of gaming systems that honestly is a big miss for me. That I just haven't really, uh, you know, gotten a chance to jump into that. You know, definitely someday. Um, and and I'd kind of echo that you're spot on with you know Dungeons and Dragons having a lot of that, you know, Lovecraftian influence with with some monsters, you know, maybe not named the same, but but certainly pulling from the same you know, sort of shared history there. I'll go. So Call of Cthulhu is pretty much a is It's very similar to Dungeons and Dragons. It's actually uses a basic role-playing system that was first developed with RuneQuest. And it's used with other um, Chaosium games. It's skill-based. You get to choose your archetype um, and you play according to them. This is the game where I swear to God, there's always one in every group that has read ancient texts, and you find a book, and the and the keeper of the game keeps saying, you know, if this is it's covered with these runics that you could tell. I mean, something bad's going to happen. And every time someone goes, I'll read the text, and that's pretty much like it almost leads into a TPK. Oh, uh, and you wonder why I ran at the name of that book. Yeah, it's <laughs> um. It uses a lot of percentiles in this game, so you your percentile types will get used quite a bit, because that helps determine how much of a success or a failure you have at something, you know, versus kind of like the D twenty that we use in D and D. I would recommend, you know, I even if you even if you don't play the game, I have a couple of source books for it, just for Lovecraftian resources. And it's just kind of cool because if you're someone who wants to write Lovecraft but wants kind of a quick quick and easy book to go to for some resources on the characters i definitely recommend anything from call of cthulhu as their supplement books because it's those are really good to help you kind of get a a good rundown of the creatures and their weaknesses you know versus you know getting lost into the the abyss that is the internet because sometimes when you stare into the abyss yep 
Sorry, sorry, I jumped the gun. No, you were perfectly fine. I was waiting for someone to finish it, actually. <laughs> it's got seven different editions. A lot of the editions used to come as box sets, and they still do, which is kind of cool. That if you're I someone... do want to quickly interject one thing. Go. I once got into a staring contest with the Abyss. You blinked, didn't you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, after an hour. Hmm. They're the only person... Some... I needed eye drops after that. I think the only <laughs> thing that could actually win that fight would probably be uh, a goldfish. <laughs> they don't blink. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. And it doesn't say, like, players and GM guides. It's keeper and investigators. So the keeper is usually the GM and the investigators are the player characters. And like I said, you play. You could pick any archetype and just run with it. And it is a lot of fun. Uh, and what's interesting is Lovecraft Country actually became a supplement to, to the Call of Cthulhu games. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. They also have done, they've expanded this in so many ways. They For a while, it was very hard to, to get the books because um, there was a bit of a collapse in the Mythos collectible card game, which led to kind of a sporadic being able to find the Call of Cthulhu books, but they're back. And if you're in the Rochester area, Millennium Games has them. Uh, and of course, you could probably find them also at other fine retailers in the area, like Just Games Rochester. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right, too. Just Games does carry them. The interesting thing, did you guys know that the 7th edition of Call of Cthulhu was actually a Kickstarter campaign? I that does not, not that surprise they, me. That's, yeah. that's pretty common these days for, I feel like, a lot of just gaming you know like new board games new rpgs you know kickstarter really seems to be the preferred method of choice i mean i guess it it helps them you know publishers you know produce a, a reasonable amount you know so that they know like hey we're meeting demand but not necessarily overproducing or underproducing you know yeah it's interesting because it was started with a goal of four of forty thousand dollars and at the end of the at the end of it, it collected over five hundred and sixty one thousand eight hundred and thirty six dollars. So yeah, there was a mean, there was a demand for that. It also helped them be able to expand the new expansion, uh, one of the more recent expansions, which is Cthulhu Through the Ages. So if you're someone who doesn't want to play in the nineteen twenties or thirties Americana, you can actually be able to play now in the Roman Empire, Mystic Iceland, a futuristic setting. And at the end times, where the monsters attempt to destroy the world. Like they do. Yeah. Now they need something to do. And actually, uh, Call of Cthulhu, it is one. It actually then inspired like two other games, too. One is Mansions of Madness. Actually, a few of them. Mansions of Madness. Betrayal at the House on Haunted Hill. And the one that I initially forgot to put on here, and then James very nicely recommended it, Arkham Horror. Well, that's something we have a lot of experience with, right, Mike? Yep, just uh, just a little bit. I'll let you guys talk about Arkham Horror because that's one I don't have a whole lot of experience with because we usually just did Call of Cthulhu when we wanted to play Cthulhu. Well, Arkham Horror is one of the flagship games from the company Fantasy Flight Games who have made a little cottage industry of Cthulhu-inspired games of their own, uh, almost parallel to Chaosium. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a cottage industry is a good way to, uh, 
describe it that they've really kind of run with it. I actually think Chaosium made the original Arkham Horror, like the first edition, which I've never, like I've, I know exists. You know, the one that we've played extensively would be the second edition. The third is actually out now, which kind of uh, simplifies, might not be exactly the right word, but it definitely streamlines stuff. But there's Mansions of Madness, there's Arkham Horror, there's Eldritch Horror, there's the Arkham Horror card game. Um, I, I, I'm probably forgetting one or two others but they've you know there there's and, and they're all thematically very similar um you all take you know you each player takes the role of an investigator and you're gathering clues battling monsters sealing gates to other worlds and other dimensions um and the scope and scale is kind of what what changes between the different games arkham horror taking place in the fictional massachusetts town of or city of arkham where a lot of lovecraft's works uh take place you know with popular locations like the miskatonic university you know, in the uh, Silver Twilight Lodge, where you can run into cultists, um, or possibly even join a cult, uh, depending on how the game goes. Whereas then Eldritch Horror kind of takes you out, and Arkham becomes just one of many locations all across the globe. You know, kind of again changing the scale. There's another one that that takes place just inside a museum in Arkham. Um, so again, the scale is a little bit different, but but gameplay is pretty similar. You collect clues and do your best to stay alive and or roll up a new character sometimes multiple times throughout the game, depending on how stuff goes. I've, I've played countless games of of the original Arkham Horror, and it's it's the, most of the games are all cooperative, um, which is another you know very specific type of game. You're all working together against the evil, the unknown, to kind of quote Christy from the beginning of that. So it, it is, you know, you play against the game, which I, I, I've always enjoyed those types of, of games. You know, it's you're, you're less combative with everyone else that you're with. You don't leave hating each other, but sometimes you do leave pretty defeated, depending on how it goes. Oh, do you ever? <laughs> Even when you win, sometimes you feel a little defeated. It's, uh, the, the insanity takes its toll, for sure. Yeah, we haven't really brought up that a lot of these tabletop games have the concept of sanity and the loss thereof baked into them as a core concept. Well, and the thing is, though, is is that is a that's a very long and running theme of Lovecraft. It is is at the end of the day, you know, there is no happy ending. Like you you lose and. It's very similar to how Stephen King used to write, where everyone used to hate his endings because it wasn't a clear-cut victory. And people forget that sometimes when you fight the dragon, dragon wins majority of the time. So that's one of the things with it. It's like even if you beat the game, it's like everyone's like, you don't have a sense of victory. Uh, You survived. Like you actually survived to the end of the game. That's a victory, especially in Lovecraft's world. That was definitely a victory. You know, def- definitely kind of, I'm sure, inspired by Lovecraftian stuff and just going on the Stephen King thing, even though it was definitely expanded from a short story, but The the Mist, that mm-hmm. directed by Frank Darabont, I mean, that was bleak. No, no spoilers, but it just, it's, it's not great. Like, it's just start to finish, it's just bleak, but definitely has a lot of those other dimensional monsters uh, throughout it. So I feel like it's it's certainly at least Lovecraftian adjacent, if if definitely not explicit but but certainly close to but yeah Yeah. you just it's not a feel good um sort of thing 
And and that's the thing with 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 Lovecraft is if you're reading it to feel good about yourself at the end of it, you're in the wrong genre. Just 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 put it down and walk away. Just walk away. <laughs> good advice. So are there any other like board games or stuff we'd like to talk about or Well, uh I believe we played a variation of this recently when Pemmy was in town, but Betrayal at the House on Haunted Hill, is it? Yep. Betrayal at the House on Haunted Hill. Oh my god, that was so much fun. (laughs) I got to play the villain in the end. Although the version we played was the Scooby-Doo version, which is uh, considerably lighter and a lot easier. Oh yeah. Yeah, House on Haunted Hill. If you get the right amount of people to, to play it, and you get the right people to play it, it is a very intense game. And if anyone out there has not played it, I recommend it, whether you're into horror or not, because it's not just a horror game. It's It can be psychological. It can be supernatural. It, it's so many different haunts that can be pulled off with this game. It's just awesome. Like, it has something for everybody in that game. Another, actually, just remember, another good game, too, is called Lovecraft-esque, which is an actual, it's called the GM-less game. Okay. Yeah, it's one where you get a group of people together, and it's a storytelling game. You have one person who's, like, the facilitator, and all the facilitator does is just make sure you're hitting the key elements for each round and making sure that nobody is uncomfortable. Um, it's the first game that I've heard of that actually uses the X which is, it's a sheet of paper and has an X on it. So if you're storytelling and you're, you're taking the story in a direction that makes someone uncomfortable, all they have to, they touch the X to let you know that they're not comfortable with it. And then you, that way the table knows to change the story. Okay. That's useful. Yeah. So that one was really kind of a cool game. I haven't been able to actually play it, but I have like the source book for it. That came out by Black Armada, and you can actually download a lot of the stuff for that on um, from their website. It's free. Excellent. So that was a, that was an interesting one too, where it's the players completely drive the story. So Chrissy, it sounds to me like you have the most experience with uh, the tabletop Cthulhu uh, stuff, or at least tied with Mike. So, I think mine might actually win because I don't get to play it as often as I like. But uh, regarding Call of Cthulhu itself, you you have played that one before, though, right? Oh yeah, I played it a while ago, but yeah, that one was that one was fun. Care to tell us a little bit about your character? The character I played in that one was actually a fortune teller who was having was being driven mad by visions of the elder gods coming back and everything. Um, And in the one campaign we were in, like I said, that was every, we have one friend who always gets Eldritch text or ancient text is one of his skills. And every time we find a book, every time we find a book, he has to read the book. It's actually, it's actually a written flaw of his character. And we've had several campaigns that, fell vastly short so it got to the point where the party would hide books from him like we would just suddenly like you found a book hide the book Mm. (laughs) disappeared under a dress disappeared in someone's jacket went flying out the window at one point i think we had one where we were in a mansion and we literally chucked it out the window and he was trying to stop us from chucking it out the window so he can read it and 
literally was trying to like he almost went out the window to go retrieve the book and we we're like no at one point one of our one of my friends who was kind of the leader of the group goes are we sure this is a bad idea stopping him from jumping out the window <laughs> he's like should we just let him go he won't make it we're five stories up <laughs> And we were all like, no, just no. Eventually, one of our campaigns, we got so tired of it. We pulled out, what is it? One of our favorite things, one of the favorite things to happen in any campaign I am when we have a stupid character is somehow they get lobotomized. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, so we kind of, at one point we had, um, he got kidnapped by like an evil scientist and he got lobotomized before we could save him. He was still able to function everything that it kind of killed the reading factor. We're like, can we have him lose this skill? They're like, yeah, you guys could choose what skill he loses. He was dumb enough to get caught. <laughs> We're like, yes, lose this skill. We're tired. I gotta of say it. Go for it. I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. Nice. Do you guys have any fun stories from Arkham Asylum? Uh, Arkham Horror? Nothing immediately jumps to mind. I do remember playing it on your birthday at Jeremy and Ryan's tiny house. Yeah, for sure. That was a, that was a good time. I mean, that was the the thing with like Jeremy and Ryan that there was a, a period of time there where we played weekly. So we were playing like pretty much every weekend we'd play for like, like all Saturday or all Sunday, whatever, whatever day worked out best. I'd, and and sometimes we'd play once. Sometimes you'd play a couple times, depending on how short it went. Sort of, but it was just good to get in there, and everyone would get all frustrated together, you know. So it was, I don't know, it it was always fun to play with everyone, even if sometimes the game itself wasn't necessarily the most fun or uh, you know uplifting of games. But in our in our heyday, we got really good. I mean, we we were playing the second edition with all of the expansions which is a lot there's a lot of extra boards a lot of extra features and usually they're all just awful things like that you just keep piling on like hey here's this awful mechanic that's going to be running in the background so even if you're not on that board trying you know if you're trying to do something else it's still going to go off if you're not careful they're all like different you know time bombs just waiting to go so it was just like racing around, juggling all of that. But, you know, we, we got really good. And then we kind of moved on to Eldritch Horror a little bit. Like Will um, had that one, which is kind of like the, the globe-trotting cousin. You know, funny, funny. I mean, every once in a while there was like, like there was one, one game where we all of a sudden we like just lost immediately. Like like everything, like the cards were not in our favor. The stars did not align for sure. And it was less than an hour and it's like, it's just, it's over. Um, it would normally the game might run like three to four hours. So having like a less than an hour game, like start to finish felt pretty crazy. Actually, as it's popping into my mind. Um, so, so Arkham Horror had a, mechanic that if you didn't stop the you know uh, the elder one from arriving you'd battle them which could be problematic generally it was a very very difficult fight with increasing difficulty like every single round so it was just like like hey you're kind of doing okay okay great we're gonna like up the difficulty by like exponentially and we got down to the very end we were almost certainly not going to win and we flipped over the card and what the, the Elder One did. And the card literally said, the Elder One has decided that something else is more important to them. And they turn around and leave. And you win the game. And it was oh. just like, we were absolutely, like, we were kind of stunned. 
Um, you know, what were the odds of that happening? It, it's the only time we've ever won, but the elder one just deciding, no, nope, I'm going to go do something else and just shambled off into uh, the abyss and left us there wondering what just happened. So that, that would probably be the, I guess, the funniest ending to any game that we ever had. Isn't that um, kind of wow. like what happened at the end of Doctor Strange? Like, eventually, like, the bad guy's just like, I'm done. This is annoying. Kinda. I'm out of here. But this one, it wasn't even annoying. Like, he was, like, dead to rights. We were we were done. Like, there was no way we were winning this one. And we just, you flip over the card, and you're just like, nope. He just, something else caught his attention, and he's just leaving. But yeah, a little bit sim- a little bit similar to Dormammu, a little bit. I, I guess the just the that whole scene is maybe emblematic of battling the the elder one, where you're just a, a, a tiny little person against this giant cosmic entity, um, trying to defeat him or it. I guess they're they're not necessarily gendered. They may be above the concept of gender. I was going to say they're they're yeah they're they're certainly beyond gender in most instances as is their intentions or thinking are, are also beyond us as well. They, they just kind of like, Oh, it's that thing. Next please. Right, but definitely, definitely caught us off guard that all of a sudden they're just like, okay, it's gone. Never won. Never won a game like that. Never having anything like that ever happened again. I don't even think any of the other elder ones even have that option. It just happened to be that one. And we happen to flip over that card at that moment. It all kind of the stars aligned, I guess, in that case. Well, I don't think we're going to top that story for tabletop games. (laughs) Nope. So let's go on to video games, which is, which is pretty video games have a very interesting history with Cthulhu and the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraftian horror in general, because a lot of Lovecraftian horror is off of us not really seeing or having a good description of the horror. It is left up to the reader's mind what it looks like, because as we all know, nothing can top a person's imagination when it comes to stuff. Like we will always imagine the worst case scenario, or it will it'll never come close to what, how we see things in our own brains. But some games nail it, and some games at it i think we're going to talk about the games we feel kind of nail what lovecraftian is we're not really going to talk about the games that kind of flopped at it which in that case we should probably start with eternal darkness indeed although interestingly enough the first game to actually feature lovecraftian stuff actually came out in 1987 it's called the lurking horror okay Um, it was a text-based adventure game and that's all i can really find on it so i'm not going any further than that but well, oh. a text game would suit Lovecraft pretty well. You, mm-hmm. you don't need, have to worry about the graphical representations. Yeah, no, no, you don't. So, Internal Darkness is San- Sanity's Requiem. If you have not played this game, play it any way you can. Because it's never been re-released since its original incarnation on the GameCube. Yeah, this game was arguably a turning point for Nintendo. This was their first mature-rated game, as far as the United States ESRB is concerned. And it was also the first game released after the passing of Nintendo President Satoru Iwata. Mm-hmm. It was released in... No, wait, not, not after his passing. After he became president. Yeah, it was. His, I was about to say, it's it's 2002. He, he passed much he later. He passed away considerably later. You are correct. Yeah. 
So the fun thing about Eternal Darkness is, first off, while it is their first foray into a mature game, you can definitely tell it's a Nintendo game. They make things color-coded to make it a little easier knowing which god that you are up against. Um, Because you get to actually pick between four of them. The first run for you only get choice of three, and then like the, I guess it's the second one, the fourth one becomes unlocked. This also is the introduction of the insanity meter. The the insanity meter in this game was was something else because I feel like most things in games in general affect your your character in in the game, whereas the insanity meter in this game affected like you like the person playing the game like it 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 played tricks on you that some of which were really really mean let's let's see i believe the game simulated the volume being turned up or down on your television yep yep i believe it re it made you think the game had reset your gamecube yep yep and perhaps most infamously the windows blue screen of death Oh, yes. <laughs> the other things it would also do, too, is it would actually start, um, as you were playing the game, you would start hearing voices. The, she- the, the game would shift. So this game messed with you as the player. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of miss that, the purpose, the point of that. Because there's some people nowadays like, this isn't what insanity looks like. no. This was, and I'm like, no, the insanity meter was how long until your game decided it was time to screw with you. And screw with you, it did. I'm sure there's enough people out there who've gotten the blue screen of death who honestly thought there was something wrong with their GameCube. And, and honestly, some of it, like like you said, the voices, like some of just that, that increased ambiance was mm-hmm. really spooky. Like it would just like, like lots of weird knocks and things like that. I mean, I, I this came out when I was in high school, and I remember like I was over at a friend's house, and we were like there alone because his mom was working late, so it was kind of late. First, of course, we had all the lights off because you know whatever. Um, it it was a little spooky. Like we went over and double checked that the door was locked. Spooky, just with all the weird knocking and noises, and we couldn't quite tell if it was coming from the game or if it was coming from the hallway he lived in a like a big high rise so you know like just you'd, you'd open the door and it'd be like this long hallway just kind of empty lights flickering you know and i mean that was kind of spooky too um so like this game like legit you know kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies um when i was like older than i feel like i should have been getting uh uh nervous from something like that but it it worked yeah. Or just like messing with the volume, like mute would come up on the screen. Just again, those just, I don't know, they, they got to us um, as two like, you know, 16, 17 year olds uh, all of a sudden uh, getting freaked out by a video game, but it happened. So, mm-hmm. and, and also the thing too with it is, and this is kind of the sad story of Eternal Darkness was there was supposed to be sequels. There were supposed to be sequels. There were sequels in play. And they never quite happened. Back in 2006, the designer of the game said, oh yeah, there's definitely sequels. We're definitely going to make another one. While the actual story of Eternal Darkness would be a standalone, they were going to do more games in that universe. It just never happened because by the time they really started to get going, that studio ran into issues with the Epic Games. And then eventually shut down. 
I think another part of the problem is the game's reception in Japan. Or in a population that is considered gaming central, it only sold around 18,000 copies. Yeah. Ooh, that's not but, good. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, it was a, it was a critical success for Nintendo. And it was and in outside of Japan, it actually made quite a bit of money. Which is so, fair, but Nintendo, better or worse, will always be a Japan first company. Yeah, and that's that's the sad thing is is I think with time nowadays people Eternal Darkness has definitely has what's considered a cult following where there are diehard fans of this game. I'm and I'm one of them. I enjoyed this game. I love the fact that this game told multiple stories, you know, jumping through jumping through time. You play as Alexandria, who finds herself, you know, she inherited her estate from her grandfather, who was brutally murdered. So it starts off with you trying to solve the murder of your grandfather. And it just, as you find more clues, it you, you walk into this huge story of this book called The Tomb of Eternal Darkness. And it allows you to explore different time periods, like ancient Persia. And you just go through time. You go to France. You go to Cambodia. You go to you know the invention. You, you know then you eventually come to Rhode Island, where you're playing as one of your own ancestors. And it's just it's amazing. And the voice actors they had for this game were like Michael Bell, Richard Doyle, Jennifer Hale. You know, I mean these are these aren't just little kind of. These are major voice actors who have a we, huge... We can also toss in Cam Clark and Kim My Guest amongst the notables. Mm-hmm. Yep, Kim My Guest, Philip Proctor. I mean, these these were these are heavy hitters. So this was not a this was a game that definitely pulled out a stop. And the soundtrack was actually exclusively made available for Nintendo Power. So if you had Nintendo Power, you could order the soundtrack for the game. Was not sold in stores. You had to get it for, for the Nintendo Power Magazine, which I think is hilarious in, in some ways. But yeah, that insanity meter will pop up in other games we talk about, too. It's not gone yet. There's another game, Mike, that you said that you actually have played. You just wish you could have spent more time on it? Yeah, uh, Sunless Sea. Um, it's a roguelike where you kind of take command of a water-based boat in this weird, dark, underground-type world, and you kind of navigate around. It, it's just it's got lots of ambiance, and you know you you battle pirates or you battle monsters or you know whatever other denizens you might run into in there. And you can go to like different part, ports of call and go on, you know, explore and, you know, bring on new members of your crew and, and it's roguelike. So, you know, like people die. Um, oh, hey, like we got attacked by this monster and half your crew is dead. Whoops. And it's hard. Like it's, it's really hard. It's one of those ones, again, I, I wish I had more time to spend with it. I, I feel like more often than not, you, you run out of fuel in the middle of the Black Sea and fade off into oblivion. But it's just it's it's just cool. It's one of those ones that kept popping up on my Steam recommended list for a long time when I finally you know picked it up a, a few years ago. But, you know, I just just don't have the time to spend you know huge amounts of 
you know, time playing video games these days, but it's, I don't know. It's just, it's really cool. And it's a, just like the look and feel of it is really cool. You know, so I would definitely recommend that for, for people to check that out. But yeah, I would definitely love to have been able to spend a, a little bit more time uh, playing it. And I actually think they've, they've got a, a sequel called Sunless Skies. Um, where I'm pretty sure you take on like a, an airship in a, you know, again, a similar fashion. Yeah I, saw, yeah, I just looked it up. Yeah, it was partially funded by a Kickstarter campaign, and it was just, it completely surpassed its goal. And it takes place in the same era as Sunless Sea, and also apparently another game that I didn't know about called Fallen London. Mm. So it's all in that same kind of kind of world of, of that. And the one mechanic, I guess, in Sunless, uh, Sunless Sea is um, you can trade information. To yes. get things you want. Like, it's not so much about money. Sometimes it's just, like, news of what's going on in the world. To You know, because everyone's kind of cut off from each other. So, which I think was kind of a cool cool thing to do. Have that as the collateral for the game. So, that was kind of cool. Yeah, it's just, it's a very cool, like, immersive sort of thing. Where you're, like, just exploring the map, you know. And you get, like, an overhead view of everything. You know, stuff starts to uncover as you you move around finding new ports. Um, like you said, that people aren't, you know, like you might get a hint that something exists someplace further south from someone at a tavern. So then you got to head down there and see if you can find it. You know, so lots of ex- exploration, lots of anything can happen. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other, the game, the other game um, that is very rage quitty heavy is The Darkest Dungeon. Has anyone has has either one of you two played that one? I haven't. James. James. Did we lose James? It's got a little too spooky in here. Uh oh, he ran for it. Where? Where am I? Did my podcast suffer a glitch? And why does my voice sound like? Need to get away from big city life? Want to swim to new adventures? Visit Innsmouth, where nothing fishy happens. Unintentionally. When I'm not thinking of wrestling, I'm engaging in theater. What does the king in yellow make you think of? back so before we were interrupted by technical difficulties we were about to talk about darkest dungeon we were so and it's interesting because now darkest dungeon actually has a board game version of it okay so the purpose so darkest dungeon the setup pretty much for it is you as the player and it realize you inherited an estate from and from one of your ancestors who is trying to ex- excavate the dungeon catacombs to kind of I get. I guess the purpose is to make more money. The game, believe it or not, with this game, the the story is kind of secondary to the actual mechanic. But in his haste to try to become more rich, he unleashed a terrible monstrosity as well as a bunch of evil creatures and corruptions onto the world. And it is your job to hire heroes to stop it. And this game, 
as permadeath in it. So once you're so once one of your heroes dies, they're dead. They're just dead. So basically nonstop hardcore mode. Pretty much. Oh, and the name of the uh the entity is the crawling chaos. So anyone who's into Lovecraft know exactly who has the moniker of the crawling chaos. Narlapotet. Interesting. I was going to say, that's definitely not a uh, made-up name. Well, I guess it is a made-up name, but it's not made up for that. No. And, and permadeath seems to be a, we'll call it a recurring theme for a lot of, you know, Lovecraftian-style games. Yeah, and once all of your once all of your roster dies, it's done. You've lost. And the game absolutely has no problem rubbing it in your face that you have been defeated. <laughs> But yeah, if a like they say, if they're lost for good. You do not get them back. Like you could restart the game, and if you restart, even if you try to like race your progress, like and go back, if you're still using like I guess the same save file, it remembers that that person died. Dang. So like there is no like you have to like completely start a whole new file and start from scratch. The other thing about this game to prove how evil this game is. <laughs> is when you eventually get to the final boss, it will take out half of your party. Whoa! So it literally tells you, as the player, to choose which characters you want to die. Jeez. Son of a motherless goat of a thousand young. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ship never off. Um, yeah, so this game does not play. In any way, shape, or form. You get to, you literally get to the final boss, and the final boss is like, okay, pick who you want to die. Boom, they're dead. That's just cruel. I, this game is very unforgiving. Mm -hmm. And it's actually kind of, it's sad, but it's actually kind of fun to literally, this game is so hard. I watched a Twitch streamer on YouTube, like when he lost. He destroyed his own keyboard for how mad he was that he lost. Like, you get into this game, and you get pissed off by it when you lose. And being someone who gets mad just at Dragon's Lair, <laughs> I have already, I've come to the conclusion I have more fun watching people play this game than actually I would have playing the game. Although I think it would be hilarious to watch me play this game on Twitch. I would just have to make sure whatever I'm playing on that I have like a thousand versions of that because I will destroy it each and every time. Nice. Okay. That's that definitely makes sense. So let's go to the opposite end of that spectrum, but keep it in the realm of Lovecraftian. Mm -hmm. We got to talk about Cthulhu saves the world. I, yeah. <laughs> so, Cthulhu Saves the World is just, it's an absolute gem. I mean, highly reminiscent of, like, Super Nintendo era Final Fantasy, you know, in, in that sort of, you know, gameplay where you, you know, like you got your different attack menu and, and everything, um, similar style graphics, and it just kind of plays Cthulhu, like, he's he's the protagonist of this story, and, and sort of a, a bit of a reluctant hero, too, but also, you know, like, well, of course I can do that. I mean, I guess I could say, you know, like, it's just full of humor. For those that are familiar with the Penny Arcade um, comic strip, they did a, they did 
released originally there were two you know parts of their video game on a rain slick precipice of darkness the third was was ultimately canceled but then the studio that made cthulhu saves the world ended up making a three and four also in a a similar style for anyone who's ever encountered those from penny arcade and i think chrissy you actually played a another cthulhu themed game from this cthulhu saves christmas cthulhu saves christmas which is just Oh my god, it is so tongue-in-chief, fourth-wall-breaking funny. The yes. only thing that that game could approve on is if you have Ryan Reynolds do the part of the narrator as Deadpool. <laughs> like, that's that would be the only improvement I could ever make on But that would be an improvement on any game. <laughs> so I gotta ask, Chrissy, did you ever achieve maximum relationship with anybody? Bottom bump. <laughs> that's an actual mechanic! I know it is. <laughs> just I still I still laugh when that, it that that's up. for our audience's sake, not yours. <laughs> no, but every single time that used to pop up in the game, I had to put the controller down because I would start laughing so hard at the punny wordplay. It was just great. It was just this this game here is an absolute gem. Just to give our audience context, Relay is a fictional lost city in the Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. Novel. Deep in the halls of Relay, uh, dead Cthulhu lies sleeping, dreaming. I think that's how that goes. To to grab a couple quotes from Cthulhu saves the world, just to you know, kind of go back to Chrissy's point of uh, you know fourth wall breaking. You know, at one point Cthulhu exclaims, "How convenient that the spaceship crashed in the just precisely the right spot to block the river and let us progress." Or, uh, I bet the developer was too lazy to make another map, so we just stuck a sailor in front to block the door. You know, lots of things like that that are kind of, you know, we'll call it quirks of that, you know, kind of RPG genre. Um, you know, certainly Final Fantasy, Pokemon, um, a lot of them all have like, you know, oh, hey, here's this fence that doesn't seem like too big a deal. Well, we can't get past because the only opening in the fence has like someone in the way. Okay. <laughs> You know, like it, 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 you know, it's one of those things like, really, you know, and it makes the game flow better, but sometimes they are a little bit silly um, with, with yeah. some of those obstructions that don't really seem like they would uh, get in the way. Yeah. I like one of the quotes is, uh, I just like insane things. Is that a problem? <laughs> which and just like that, which is one of the things where I'm like, no, that actually isn't a problem. That's awesome. <laughs> so. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, Cthulhu Save the World is a really, really fun game. Oh my god. I definitely recommend that for anybody out there who's like, I want to check out a Cthulhu game. If you want one that doesn't have jump scares and is going to just be nice to you, Cthulhu Saves the World. If you're a hardcore Lovecraftian junkie, Cthulhu Saves the World. Or Saves Christmas if you really want to go down a fun path. (laughs) Right. It, it's just it's just fun. You know, I mean, it's got that kind of nostalgic uh, RPG feel to it on top of, uh, you know, otherwise the setting, you know, the it's the obligatory Cthulhu RPG to, to do a callback to to the smash up. Was it smash up or super fight? Smash up. Smash up. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of the, the cast here, you know, and it's not like an easy RPG either. I mean, it gets pretty challenging at times, so. You know, setting aside, if you enjoy a, you know, well done, you know, reasonably challenging, you know, kind of vintage style RPG, then this is definitely a good one to check out. Okay. 
anything we want to add before we uh, take our break? Um, there's a couple of other good ones out there. I'm just going to list them real quickly uh, for audience members. Obviously, we do have to do the obligatory mention of Bloodborne, which many people think is like the perfect Cthulhu um, Lovecraftian game. If you're someone who doesn't like to go into cosmic horror, but just likes the tension and the atmosphere of Lovecraft, uh, Darkwood is another good one, um, which is a top-down survival horror game. But if you want to go back to the old point-and-click days, there is The Last Door, which is a combination of Lovecraft and Poe. So if you're a Poe fan, you'll definitely like that one. Nice. Nice. And on that grim, dour, and disturbing note, we will take our break. And when we return, we will have this day in gaming history and all our other end of episode stuff. Be right back. Want to support the Irregulars? Head over to www.patreon.com backslash FC3ROC. We're part of the media division of Flower City Comic Con, based in Rochester, New York. We're a nonprofit group. Everything we make off of Patreon and everything else we do goes right back into putting on our future conventions and other events, from reserving the facilities to bringing in guests. If you pledge any amount, even a slim dollar, you will receive improved access to my blog entries, where every Tuesday I go over current video game news and write retrospectives on old-school arcade games, all delivered conveniently to your inbox. There's plenty of other perks and rewards, and if you don't see what you're looking for, reach out to the crew. They'll be happy to work with you. Want to get a hold of us in particular? You can email Christy directly at k-r-i-s-s-i at fc3roc.org. And me at J-A-M-E-S at F-C-3-R-O-C dot org. At the moment, we're still working out most social media matters, but we are indeed on Facebook at Gaming Street Irregulars. Chrissy and I are fairly frequently there sharing news and things we find cool. And begging, I mean asking, for your questions and answers to be used in upcoming episodes. Yeah, asking. That's the ticket. We love hearing from you all, whether you have praise, constructive criticism, or just want to share something cool and gaming-related yourselves. Also, wherever you find FC3 on social media, we're usually not too far behind, so if you reach out to them with something for us, they'll get it to us shortly. Legally speaking, all music, sound effects, voice clips, and so on are the properties of their respective owners. We make no claim to them and have no intention of profiting off of them. Please don't sue us. We have nothing you'd want. Now, on this day in gaming history, oh, ho, ho, ho. greed officially infiltrated the video gaming world <laughs> with me, Wally <laughs> James's favorite character. One of them. <laughs> I, I, I am a big fan of Wario, and he debuted in Japan on the Game Boy on this day. In Super Mario Land 2, Six Golden Coins. Yes, Man, I, I love that love game. I love that game so much. 
Oh my god, I have it. On, I now have it um, on my um, DS because they did have it come out on the virtual console, and I have it on there. And every so often, I will just do a speed run through it. And I, I actually enjoy the um, the uh, slot machine mechanic that would help get you uh, that help get you like extra lives and stuff. Mm, okay. I was going to say, but between six golden coins and then the follow-up Super Mario Land 3 Wario Land, I mean, those are probably easily two of my most played Game Boy games. Probably even more so than Tetris or some of the other big classics. Um, like, those two were just, I mean, absolute staples for me. And coincidentally, on the same day in 1998, with the release of the Game Boy Color... Wario Land 2 debuted in Japan. That's, it's, I guess it's a big date for Wario. I yeah. like it. Apparently, we can consider this what, Wario's birthday? Effectively. Right. <laughs> Happy birthday, Wario. Stop Enjoy your garlic stuff. flavored cake. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so. And we'll, and we'll all enjoy it later when he's farting. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes. <laughs> So, James, just real quickly, I received a note from from uh, the other world. Um, Oscar has taken your blanket, and it is now in Dracula's castle. So guess what we have to go to next week? Oh, okay. The second handle. The second handle. That's I'm going to have to handle. Now, don't worry. It we'll is Castlevania. A... Don't worry. We'll have a Belmont with us. It'll be fine. Yes, next week we will be talking the many retellings of the first Castlevania, because there have been more than you think. Mm-hmm. Mike, you want to join us for that one? Maybe. Cool. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see who else we can grab. Yeah. Come on, it's Castlevania. How can you? I was going to say the the big the big thing for me is always just scheduling, you know, in and around the kids. So. Yeah. But. I always enjoy uh, dropping by. Like I said, it didn't feel like it was that long ago. No. Um, and we're always happy to have you, Mike. Yeah, you're 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 a great friend, and you and you're pretty solid at this part of, at being a good guest. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm trying, definitely trying. <laughs> Hopefully, I don't ramble too much. Nope, no, no, we, we need we need the rambling. Mm, well, hey, Do, careful, you're doing it for the care. content. <laughs> Podcast, the reason why rambling is a good thing. And before we ramble beyond the point of our listeners' patience, we're going to sign off here. I'm James Irish, and on behalf of Chrissy Harding and Mike QC, game on. Bye, everyone. Adios. Special thanks to the team at the podcast Wrestling Makes You Think for the vocal effects used in this episode.